You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, a whirlwind tour of uprising against British colonial rule during Queen Elizabeth's reign. Not only are they still revered ridiculously, but also they hold wealth which they stole. It's a ridiculous, vulgar amount of wealth held by a family that is completely dysfunctional. Is many of the formerly colonized countries are going to definitely move away from having the queen or the king now be the head of their state. That is a trend that we are going to see more of. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Queen Elizabeth II, head of the British monarchy for more than 70 years, died on September 8th. Elizabeth became the queen in February of 1952, and the ensuing 70-plus years of her life ruled over a worldwide colonial monarchy. She inherited hundreds of years of colonial and imperial power. If you were to spread out over a year celebrations of each country that has declared independence from the United Kingdom, you would be celebrating a holiday once every week. The colonial legacy is strong. We can't hold Queen Elizabeth directly responsible for what came before her, but on today's show, we'll explore the colonial impact of the 70-plus years that Elizabeth was queen and the movements around the world that fought for and in some cases are still working toward independence. Today, we're joined by one of the world's experts on decolonization movements in the past century. Vijay Prashad is a historian and writer and the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. I'd be remiss not to mention that he has a new book out co-authored with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. But today we'll turn to his expertise in decolonization movements of the 20th century, which he documented in a 2007 book called The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. That book was just reissued for a 15th anniversary edition last month. Thanks for joining us, Vijay. It's a pleasure. Great to be with you. Today, we're going to kind of take a whirlwind tour of uprising against British colonial rule during Queen Elizabeth's reign, which started in 1952. But before we step into the tour on a case-by-case basis, I'm wondering if you could reflect a little on the overall role of the monarchy in modern British colonialism and imperialism. Well, you know, where does one even begin? I mean, the British Isles, very small part of the world, just off the coast of Europe, um, relatively inconsequential for most of its history. You know, it's pretty remarkable that they developed the means through perhaps trading first with Europe and so on. They developed the means, a big maritime fleet, to get out there to Asia uh, to develop a um, slave trade with the Americas and so on, uh, built an incredibly large footprint around the planet. Again, I just want to emphasize a tiny little island, but an island that was willing, like the Portuguese and the Spanish before them, and to some extent the Dutch, to use you know a great deal of force to subordinate people. Uh, violence was the coin, really. Some people like to emphasize trade, but effectively violence played an enormous role. And the British were able to subdue large parts of the world. There's a hideous record of this subjugation, which includes, you know, the forceful growing of opium in India, which was then 
really forced into the Chinese market. The Chinese in the 19th century kept trying to push back and say, we don't want to buy this opium, which the British were having Indian peasants grow. Um, so the British fought two wars to force the Chinese to uh, buy the opium. By the way, these are known as the opium wars. So it's not even like anybody tried to hide the origin of these wars. Massive financial infrastructure grows around the the trade in opium, including some of Britain's largest banks and you know uh, company houses, what were known as company houses like Jardines, banks like Barclays and so on. There were some people from the United States who also made their wealth in the opium trade. The Astor family from New York, the Forbes family, which of course publishes the Forbes magazine. Uh, essentially, they all made their money in the opium trade. It's really interesting. Not much is made of, of the colonial history's role in some of these kinds of brutalities, not just you know, the massacres of people here, there and everywhere. Jallianwala Bagh, 1919. There's so many names and dates. But also in the structure of the world economy that was created, you know, the use again of immense force to subordinate China, uh, which had been an economy uh, roughly the same size and dynamism of Europe was basically put to its knees through this uh, insistence that the Chinese people buy opium. I mean, the heart of colonialism was in this. And, you know, the family of, of uh, the Windsors, which is Queen Elizabeth II's family, uh, was rooted in all of this. I mean, you know, they had a long imperial tradition and history. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I know that in the aftermath of, of uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, and in particular when the United States uh, goes into war with Iraq for the second time in 2003, there was a way that colonialism was being um, addressed as if to say there was a good side to it. You know, this happens periodically, but this is a cycle that opened up with books um, written by people like Niall Ferguson and others saying the United States needs to learn about colonialism from the British. Um, and colonialism is a good thing. But in fact, when you look back at the actual history of colonialism, it's steeped in an ugliness that's unimaginable for most people uh, who, who don't see these things carefully. You mentioned that when many people talk about British history and British reign, they talk about trade, but that really violence was the driving force. I read that British ships transported around 3 million Africans across the Middle Passage to build up the slave economy in the Americas. When trade and the economy is based on dehumanization, it's easy to remove violence from the equation in, in terms of how people talk about it. But it's important that we recenter that. I want to shift our conversation to the time of the actual Queen's reign. And of course, we're not going to have time to talk about every single colonial experiment that the Queen was involved with because there were so many during her reign. But I'm wondering if we can start with the first rebellion once she was in power. That would be the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya beginning in the early 1950s. In your book, uh, The Darker Nations, you wrote that the British policy sought to exterminate rather than contain the rebellion. And in the interim, it energized the most vicious settler racism. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya? Well, you know, um, after World War II, there was an attempt by many countries to seize the fact of British weakness, because after all, uh, Britain had suffered a serious blow, um, you know, from 
the blitz and then the fight uh, to subdue nazism uh, not as serious a blow as the soviet union had suffered which lost you know over 20 million citizens in that battle against the nazis but britain had, had suffered a great deal um now i would like to say one thing about that a great favorite of people um in this period is to talk about winston churchill i, I just like to put on record that as a consequence of world war 2 winston churchill personally diverted food from an area of bengal place where i was born some decades later um and in that region not far from where i was born in calcutta in east midnapur district and so on um between 1 and 3 million people died in 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 a, a act of uh, of starvation uh, by the british state by the imperial state because they diverted food to feed the troops um this is a um well i don't know what to call it i don't want to use the word holocaust because that's misunderstood um this is a case of mass starvation uh, which was done as part of british policy you know this was not as a consequence of nature or anything like that um churchill will of course later become a great favorite not only of the royal family but of prime ministers over and over again that who would talk about churchill as a great ex- exemplar anyway at the end of world war 2 um britain was greatly weakened and a number of countries that had been colonized um put on the table their independence of course most famously india and pakistan independent in 1947 um in on the african continent this energy was very much on the table in the gold coast led by kwame nkrumah a real push uh, for that country to achieve its own independence uh, from britain and eventually in 51 the process begins a few years later it will uh, come to fruition when kwame nkrumah is um, made the first head of government of an independent ghana uh, comes out of the british colony the gold coast well in kenya similar energy is on display you have an amazing uh, you know emergence of a mass struggle for independence and it needs to be said that this struggle goes back right to the 1920s you know it it's not a struggle that um starts after world war 2 it's a very old struggle it matures in the 1930s this struggle um forms into a demand for higher wages against you know the kipande the identity document that the british imposed upon um the kenyan people and so on uh, and so that uh, struggle which starts in the 20s escalates and in the immediate period after world war 2 um there is a attempt by um the kenyans to again put their views on the table this is suppressed by the british and the kenyan people enter into an armed rebellion it's called the mau mau now what's interesting is the british basically treated the mau mau um not as a independent struggle but as a kind of savage rebellion that needed to be put down savagely it's important to say that because you know it would have been quite easy to understand the mama rebellion as a civic rebellion as an attempt by the people in kenya to uh, assert their right to independence slight difference between kenya and ghana or the gold coast was that in kenya there were a large number of white settlers british settlers who had settled there there were very lucrative plantations and so on they didn't want to move um, and the british in some respects both in kenya and then in malaya both plantation economies with a settler population both of these places they simply did not want to negotiate independence so you had 
horrible violence in both Kenya and in in Malaya. For many years, we didn't actually know the depth of of the violence. And, and I say one reason we didn't know about the extreme violence used by the British, despite the fact that uh, Kenyan writers themselves told these stories, was that the British authorities suppressed the archive. In fact, a lot of documents had been destroyed um, shortly after the uprising had been put down. Um, that doesn't change the fact that some documents remain. And during the emergency period in the 1950s, while um, Queen Elizabeth II was on the British throne, uh, Carolyn Elkins, a professor at Harvard University, estimates that perhaps up to 300,000 people were killed um, in crushing that rebellion. And, you know, very sadly, I mean, these are, look, without a doubt, these are war crimes, without a doubt. But very sadly, I must say, uh, there was very little, um, you know, understanding in England of what had happened. And it took till 2013. Can you imagine? This is the 1950s. 60 years later, the British government finally acknowledged um, the, the terrible violence done to people. And there was some cash payment dispersed among the um, those who had claimed that they had been or their families had been affected by the British emergency. Um, so that's the Mau Mau. I mean, it is emblematic of um, the, the amnesia that we have, that we assume that once the war ended and this decolonization process went along, that somehow the British, you know, peacefully dispersed the colonies. Not true at all. And in fact, not even true in India. Uh, we often forget that in the during World War II, there was crushing violence imposed upon the Indian people when they attempted to uh, get their independence. And even the uh, departure of the British, you know, was done through great violence by dividing the Indian subcontinent into India and Pakistan, occasioning the transfer of 13 million people, uh, 1 million of whom died in that, uh, in that partition. You know, population transfers, by the way, illegal by international law, but in fact, uh, entirely made normal by the British policy um, in, the, transfer, in the, the partition of India in 1947. So I want to take us to the next stop on our tour. Uh, you're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. We're in conversation with historian and author Vijay Prashad about the colonial rule of the British Empire since Queen Elizabeth was in power. Um, you mentioned quite a few times already the Gold Coast, Ghana, and Kwame Nkrumah. Ghana was the first African nation to gain political independence from British rule in 1957. Can you tell us more about Kwame Nkrumah and his role? You know, Nkrumah was a remarkable man. Um, you know, like many of his generation, whether it's people like Jomo Kenyatta, uh, whether it's Julius Nyerere and so on, um, these were people who very much understood that having um, their own countries be ruled by themselves is, is, is a very significant advance. In other words, their countries had to establish sovereignty uh, over the territory, the people had to be allowed um, not to be treated as children, you know, by a colonial state, but as uh, people capable of, of governing their own destiny. And Nkrumah, who, you know, um, studied in various parts of the world, including traveling to the United States to take a degree, uh, Nkrumah, quite a remarkable man. You know, he, I suppose, 
you would say that he was moved to radicalism by reality. Uh, he, he doesn't come out of some sort of left-wing tradition, but when you see him over the course of his life, he radicalizes very rapidly. You know, um, he starts off as a pan-Africanist, which is a broad ideology, uh, understanding that the African continent is a, is a singular place in the world where African people whose lives had been brutally set aside by European colonialism and racism, the continent, in fact, had been divided up in Berlin in 1884-85 at a conference of colonial powers. There was not one African present. They, in fact, just put the map on a table and divided the, con con co the continent, saying, well, the British will take this, the French will take this, and so on. Um, an act of extreme brutality on a continent. Uh, people were not able to really, um, you know, have their own social development define the nature of their countries or of their nations and so on. This was done, you know, external to them. I mean, that is an act of violence in itself. Mm -hmm. So Nkrumah emerges as a pan-Africanist, somebody who effectively was entirely against the partition done in Berlin, talking about Africa having a singular destiny and so on. He then uh, forms a, a party called the Convention People's Party, uh, which is very much like the Indian National Congress. In fact, Nkrumah was quite inspired by Gandhi and Nehru. And, and when he makes, in, you know, in the last period of their struggle in the 1950s, in fact, they adopt the kind of Gandhi hat, uh, which you see um, the activists of the Convention People's Party wearing. When they do declare independence in 57, and eventually the Ghanaian people elect Nkrumah as the president, Nkrumah then moves in a direction where he understands that to establish the true sovereignty of Ghana, look, there's a good reason it was called the Gold Coast. It has one of the largest known reserves of gold at the time. To establish sovereignty over the country, Ghana would have to confront Western multinational corporations and so on. And, you know, in order to establish the dignity of the people, Ghana would have to use whatever wealth it had to improve people's lives. And it's in this, in the actual tangible, um, you know, tasks set by history that Nkrumah becomes a socialist. You know, he, he was not a socialist, very much a socialist before he was a pan-Africanist. He becomes a socialist when he recognizes what is necessary um, in Ghana. And of course, you know, he, when a young man emerges in the Congo, the largest country in Africa, most important country, that's Patrice Lumumba leading his own independence struggle against the French. When Patrice Lumumba emerges, um, you know, uh, Kwame Nkrumah meets him in Accra at a Pan-African meeting. Another person at that meeting is Franz Fanon. They all get to know each other. Nkrumah becomes a kind of mentor to uh, Patrice Lumumba. Patrice Lumumba faces a coup d'etat from the French and the United States. That's a very interesting story, which has a lot to do with uranium. When that coup happens, it, it really distresses Nkrumah. He's deeply radicalized then, becomes effectively an anti-imperialist, starts drafting a book, um, which is late, which will be published. Very, It's an extraordinary book about imperialism on the African continent. Then he himself is a victim of a coup uh, while he was on a trip in, in China. He is also overthrown. Uh, that's a thing that a coup that takes place about five years after Lumumba's death in 1966. Uh, in one way, 
it's very interesting when you look look at this story because yes there was no emergency british emergency against the ghanaian people as there was in kenya but it's very interesting to look at the role of british and us intelligence in both places like ghana but also in in the congo um these people had to face british intelligence officers trying to destabilize their government so you know on the one hand nowadays pictures are going around of queen elizabeth ii dancing with kwame nkrumah and saying well you know this is a quite a liberal thing to do because in places like england at the time this would be greatly scoffed at in some places even illegal in fact in the united states at that time well all of that was happening in the diplomatic sphere meanwhile the government that um, you know queen elizabeth ii had sanctioned that government was out there trying to destabilize these governments that is part of the experience of the reign of the 70 years of rule of Queen Elizabeth. You're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. We're in conversation with historian and author Vijay Prashad. Vijay, we are, of course, not going to have time to talk about every single country that decolonized under her rule. So the next piece of this conversation is kind of going to be a choose-your-own-adventure. I want to touch on some countries from the 1960s that uh formally decolonized from British rule Sierra Leone and Kuwait both gained independence in 1961 Nigeria and Uganda both decolonized in 1963 the Gambia in 65 Botswana and Malawi in 66 South Yemen which operated under British rule until 1967 any of those that you'd like to talk about specifically Well before we get to those I- I'll sure. talk briefly about another one which is I had mentioned already Malaya you know uh-huh. um you know just as say the gold coast named extraordinarily for a metal uh, I I in fact don't like these things you know how people now talk about this triangle in Argentina Bolivia and Chile as the lithium triangle it's unfortunate because you know real people live there um there is no such thing as the gold coast as such but you could call malaya in a way a strip of rubber because it was the core part of the world that generated rubber um for now the massive expansion of automobiles um in the post war period you know uh, british us um dutch and so on rubber companies were making an enormous amount of money buying rubber off the plantations rubber sap of the plantations of malaya and selling the making you know uh, tires uh, and then selling it into the world market for cars and trucks and 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 so on well those plantations in malaya uh, many of them owned by british planters or other european planters but most by british planters were run on ruthless lines i mean we we don't often think of slavery in in these parts but it was effectively slavery and a brutal hierarchical system put in place by british colonialism you know where you had uh, the indians here the chinese there the malays over there you know they had the graded hierarchy of races um really very segregated system set up by british colonialism they brought indian workers so called coolies um to work the plantations directly and and so on well you know when you do that to people they are going to fight back and there was there's actually pretty long history of attempted resistance against british or planter rule really not british rule but also planter rule some parts of malaya 
were kind of run by the planters themselves. You know, there was no real state control. Well, as I say, if you do that, you're going to get a response. It's important to understand that Malaya was very much part of the theater of the war in World War II against the Japanese. Lots of people learned about arms, you know, in that era. And so when the Malay National Liberation Army was set up, uh, you know, and also, of course, the Malay Communist Party, uh, when they were set up, they began basically an armed struggle in 1948 against the planters. It's interesting, um, you know, when Franz Fanon, the great Martinican, is writing his essays that become Wretched of the Earth, what Fanon writes about in the section of that book called Concerning Violence is that, you know, colonialism imposes violence on people, he says. And then if colonialism imposes a structure of violence and then actual events of violence, how do you expect the colonized to react? I mean, in fact, even in Indian history, where there's little too much emphasis on Gandhi and nonviolence, a lot of the anti-colonial struggle was extraordinarily violent, burning down of police stations, attacking and killing um, colonial officials, shooting British policemen in the streets of India and so on. There was a lot of violence. How can you expect people who have been brutalized into a, a structure of violence to not also act violently? So that's the reason why in 1948, um, in Malaya, you, you have this insurgency breakout where plantations are attacked. And immediately, the British government uh, puts in place a state of emergency. That state of emergency in 1948, it's really quite ignored. Um, in, in the consciousness of people when they think of this period. But this was a brutal insurgency, counterinsurgency. I mean, the British threw everything. You know, it, it's interesting. Years ago when I was reading about the U.S. war in Vietnam and reading about Agent Orange, I was actually quite interested in this whole business of Agent Orange, thinking, wow, you know, this is a brutal thing. United States is using this, you know, illegal chemical weapon um, against the... Uh, against the people in Vietnam. But of course, during the Malay insurgency, the British used Agent Orange. Uh, they basically used it about 10 or 15 years before the US uh, army or military used it in, in Vietnam. Not only that, uh, there were, you know, the evidence of torture, of internment camps, brutal mass and collective punishment. Again, collective punishment, people will know is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. This was routinely used in Malaya. That, that counterinsurgency by the British was ruthless. And by the way, again, it wasn't just the British. You know, Their troops were joined by Australians, by New Zealand, um, by the government of Taiwan, entered, sent troops in by the Thai and the United States. Why, why am I saying this? Well, look, Australia and New Zealand participated as part of this you know, commonwealth um, the white settler colonial nations uh, that have, you know, some fealty to each other. Now, of course, it's all sanitized. It's called the five eyes, the intelligence sharing between Canada, the United States, Britain, New Zealand and Australia. It's so interesting that these are the five majority or oh, four majority um, settler colonial countries um, that were established by Britain in the colonial era. So these four plus Britain are now in a privileged intelligence sharing network. Well, during the Malaya insurgency, Australia and New Zealand sent troops um, to participate in the brutality. Well, all of that seems to have been long forgotten, I must say. 
So we are having this conversation because Queen Elizabeth II died on September 8th. She was queen for over 70 years, while the beginning of that Malayan independence struggle started before her reign. It ended five years after she became queen. So let's move into the 60s now. I mentioned a handful of countries that gained independence from British colonial rule in the 60s. I'm wondering if you are interested in talking about any of those struggles in countries like Sierra Leone, Kuwait, Nigeria, Uganda, the Gambia, Botswana, South Yemen. Yeah, I mean, you know, the one in Yemen is really pretty uh, harsh story. Um, I mean, and one reason it's a pretty harsh story is that, you know, what 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 was the story of Yemen? Firstly, you know, I had said earlier that the Britain as a maritime power entered um, both the Indian Ocean and then the South, you know, the South China Sea dominated the rim of of um, of Asia and so on. Well, as part of that, the British established a very early um, position on the Arabian Peninsula. You you should know that in the Indian Ocean, trade between the eastern coast of Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, and India goes back to ancient times. I mean, there was a great Indian Ocean trade. People had um, an, an immense uh, history of moving goods all the way from Tanzania. Interesting, the language of Swahili, for instance, in eastern Africa is a is a portmanteau language that incorporates Arabic and so on because it was a trader's language. It was a largely peaceful trade. There's very little evidence of, of you know, maritime war and so on. When the Portuguese entered in 1498, they bring violence to the Indian Ocean. It's, it's an interesting story. Well, the British come to the uh, Arabian Peninsula and they establish a port in Aden, which is near today's Yemen. Um, I mean, in today's Yemen, they establish a port of Aden, which is going to be their main uh, place to refuel their ships and so on, to uh, take on coal uh, for the journey down the coast of Africa until the Suez Canal was opened in 1869. I mean, Aden continues to play a major role um, in British trading and so on. Well, as with all, um, you know, with all kinds of, of, of these situations after World War II, you see in Yemen, sections of the society start to push for kinds of, um, you know, uh, um, independence or home rule or some kind of, of rule by themselves. Well, you know, the British were not keen on this. I mean, for several reasons. Um, one reason being that uh, they, you know, it was an important port for them, a very important port for Britain in the post-war era. Britain was still trying to hold on to some of their um, power in the Indian Ocean. You know, they had one port in Diego Garcia in the middle of the in, in Indian Ocean. Britain continues still today, um, even though they've handed over the port to the United States as a military base, they continue till today to resist the demands of the people of these islands known as the Chagos Islands to return home. And the Chagos Islanders have court cases in England which have been mostly dismissed. Some of them have some traction, but they've been mostly dismissed. So the ports were very valuable and useful to Britain. They refused to surrender them. And so Britain then enters into a pretty brutal war to try to suppress um, the people of what will later be Yemen. 
uh, and you know they want to hold Aden desperately uh, against all odds. And again, we have the story of a lot of violence. I mean, it's the same story over and over again. What is one to say? You know, um, it's the same story. It's a, a story of where people, in a kind of mood of anti-colonialism, are eager to have some independence, and then on the other side of it, um, you know, the, the the colonial rulers, in this case, the British, of course, um, very much opposed to allowing the area to get independence. I mean, what changes the situation for Yemen to some extent, which didn't happen in Malaya, certainly didn't happen in Kenya, was the um, appearance in 1952 of the um, Egyptian leader Gamal Abdul Nasser when the free officers conduct their coup in Egypt. Uh, Nasser begins to uh, start thinking about creating a United Arab Republic. He, in fact, turns towards um, the Gulf, uh, puts pressure also on Saudi Arabia. They begin to fear him greatly, uh, but also looks towards creating, um, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, landing pad in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, which was Yemen. Uh, later, as a consequence of some of these these struggles, they formed the Federation of Arab Emirates. You know, and this is interesting because you know, in a way, the 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 Egyptians ad- help advance the cause of the Yemeni people. But by '63, that means ten years after Elizabeth II is on the throne, the British basically join up with the Saudis. I'd said to you earlier that the Saudis also threatened by Gabal Abdul Nasser. So the Egyptians back the Yemenis and a major war breaks out between the Yemenis and the Egyptians on one side and then the Saudis and the British on the other. Um, that fight is terrible. It, it starts in 63 and it goes on and, and there are you know casualties that we don't really know wh- where they come in. This sort of ends up, it goes for four years. I mean, point I'm trying to make is that Look, this is just one story of of the same structure. There are people who have been colonized by the British long before Queen Elizabeth was born. Um, They, by the time of World War II, start to assert themselves much more fundamentally. Some of them take advantage of the fact that now you have a United Nations, which has a charter that establishes the right of people uh, to some sovereignty and so on. Then the British come back and say, nothing doing, not for you. And that's during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, extremely brutal crackdown. People still in some areas prevail, but not everywhere. Um, Not everywhere. Certainly not everywhere. We are in conversation with Vijay Prashad, historian and author. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, on Law and Disorder. Let's move into the 1970s now. These are some of the countries that decolonized from British rule in that decade. Zimbabwe, previously known as Rhodesia under British rule, gained independence in 1970. Sierra Leone, Qatar, and Bahrain gained independence in 71. Sri Lanka, known as Ceylon, became a republic in 1972, Malta in 74, Trinidad and Tobago in 76. Now, I specifically want to ask you about uh, Rhodesia and Zimbabwe. Can you tell us a little bit about that decolonial process? Yeah, it's so interesting that the name of the country, um, the previous colonial name of the country is a name of a person. I mean, how repulsive is that? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, and you just said Rhodesia, but there's also 
There's South Rhodesia and North Rhodesia. It's not just Zimbabwe, also Zambia. I mean, something repulsive that in world history, we can have a large part of the world named after one person who's not even from there. You know, this is Cecil Rhodes, a British um, man who was given license by the crown of his day to essentially go and conquer a part of the African continent and um, name it after himself. I mean, it's a grotesque. It's a grotesqueness by itself. Britain held Rhodesia, which they treated again as a settler colony, similar to um, Kenya. Large number of British people migrated to today's Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, and you know had large farms, controlled sections of the nascent industry. But really, the the struggle was in in, in agriculture. They owned large, enormous farms. Um, you know. Uh, and they controlled the economy uh, and they brutalized the population. I mean, they treated the people essentially as field hands, indentured labor and so on. Th those Africans who lived there were not treated as humans at all. You know, there was a kind of apartheid system in Rhodesia uh, without the name apartheid, you know. Um, and so that was the situation just as in, 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 in Kenya. And when the people started to make claims uh, for themselves saying, listen, we want to have our own lives, our own dignity. We want to build our own world, as it were. Um, the British fought back against them ruthlessly. I mean, look, there's a great film made by a Swedish filmmaker called Concerning Violence about um, the book by Franz Fanon, which I had mentioned. There's a scene shot contemporaneously with the um, with the liberation movement in Zimbabwe, where one of the settlers is asked about the liberation movement. And he said, we would prefer to destroy our land than to hand it over um, to our servants effectively. I mean, it's in, the attitudes are incredible that people have there. Well, okay, so it's interesting because well, what's the role of the British in terms of, of Rhodesia? Because technically Rhodesia was, you know, an independent place. So what was the, the situation there? Um, well, you see, the British played a duplicitous game here. Because on the one hand, there was an independent government, uh, the government of Ian Smith. And you had the British government saying, we are trying to pressure Ian Smith to behave better. On the other hand... Britain was the principal backer of Ian Smith's government. So it's not like, you know, Britain was like playing some liberal role. They played a duplicitous role in, in that situation. Well, of course, you know, when people are struggling against all odds to fight against a colonial power like in Rhodesia, backed by the West and so on, you had two, three, maybe four different fronts. You had... Um, you know, the ZANU-PF, for instance, the largest one led by Robert Mugabe, they were backed by the Soviet Union and other countries, including Cuba. Um, and they fought essentially an arms struggle against the Ian Smith government. Uh, eventually, when the Ian Smith government had to fall and there was elections in uh, what would become Zimbabwe, uh, ZANU-PF won the election. And you might want to know, just on a side note, by the way, that the British monarchy sent a representative uh, to Harare for the ceremony when Robert Mugabe took the oath of office. And that representative at that ceremony was now uh, Charles III. 
uh, he went, uh, you know, carrying essentially the authority of, of his mother, the queen. Well, um, the moment you had this government in Zimbabwe in place, the entire apparatus of the British state turned against it, including uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation, which from 1988 till almost the present day has taken an adverse position uh, against the government in Zimbabwe. And what? why did they take this adverse position? Because remember I said that the settlers in Rhodesia had basically control of all the land and the people, the Rhodesian people or the Zimbabwean people had no control over the land. So what the government of ZANU-PF did uh, of Robert Mugabe was that they conducted wide-scale land transfers, um, you know, initially to people who had fought in the independence struggle, and then they basically started to expropriate land from the big white farmers. Well, this, a process which continued from 1980 right into the 2000s, you know, the, the government kept trying new schemes, uh, the willing buyer, willing seller, that was a big scheme in the 1990s and so on. But effectively, any attempt to expropriate the colonial, settler colonial uh, landholders was greeted by the British state and the BBC as some great violation against the rights of property. It's incredible, you know, what kind of world we live in. A world, by the way, where you might be happy to know that slave owners in the island of Jamaica continued to be paid by the British state for the loss of their property, aka human beings, right up till 2010. So that was going on in Jamaica, where the British state was quite happy to pay, um, you know, families of former slave owners for the loss of their quote-unquote property. At the same time, as the British state, Queen as the sovereign, was out there maligning the attempts in Zimbabwe uh, to somehow create an equity in the in the in the land. Uh, distribution. Well, I do want to ask you more about the Caribbean and the British role in Caribbean colonization. The kingdom, of course, still has many of those countries in its commonwealth, including Jamaica. Before we get there, going slightly back in history, I wanted to ask if if you wanted to speak on the decolonization of Sri Lanka. Yeah, you know, Sri Lanka is interesting. You mentioned the turn of Sri Lanka to a republic in 1972. Of course, Sri Lanka won its independence in 1948. Many countries in the Caribbean today uh, had won their independence in the aftermath of World War II. But, you know, they continued to have uh, Queen Elizabeth II as their head of state, as it were. Um, A good example of that is actually Trinidad and Tobago. And I wanted to say a few things about that. Queen Elizabeth II effectively, uh, well, well, let's should go back. Trinidad and Tobago was a um, colony of the British crown and of the settler planters who ruled it, again, um, ruling it uh, in, for a long period of its history with people who were not paid for their labor and treated as property. And then they had a large indenture uh, population come from Asia. Um, well, you know, when... Trinidad and Tobago, after its own struggles, won its independence in 1962. It retained the Queen, that's Queen Elizabeth II, as the head of state uh, from then, 1962, until um, 1976. And so that's an interesting feature. 
you know, then subsequent to that, you know, they had remained a member of the Commonwealth. That is, Trinidad continues to be a member of the Commonwealth, where the Queen effectively is the titular head of the Commonwealth. But they, in fact, for a long while had the Queen as their head of state. Many Caribbean islands continue to have the Queen as head of state, but slowly the tide is turning. Uh, while she was still alive, Barbados decided to become a republic. And during the days after her death, uh, the head of government in Antigua uh, and also in Jamaica have suggested that they will now move uh, to a republic status. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I want to stay with Trinidad and Tobago for a minute because the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago was a very distinguished scholar. His name is Eric Williams. And Dr. Eric Williams wrote a book on capitalism and slavery. What Dr. Eric Williams demonstrated in that book was the enslavement of humans in the Caribbean actually provides the down payment for capitalism. So capitalism in that sense uh, begins in places like the Caribbean. And all the major uh, social advances that took place in a place like England or Britain um, came at the expense of people in the Caribbean. It's a very important argument made by Eric Williams. When he eventually becomes head of government, he is really unable to advance um, a strategy that would change that, take, turn that around and allow the um, fruits of, of, of uh, the work of the people of Trinidad and Tobago and their resources to benefit the people there. Uh, that was difficult. Anytime a government in the Caribbean attempted to move in a kind of radical direction, such as, say, another former British colony, uh, the colony of Guyana, uh, used to be British Guyana. The, the first prime minister of British Guyana, Chedi Jagan, tried to do twice uh, a kind of acceleration of moving the benefits of the work of the people of Guyana for themselves. And he was overthrown in two British coups. In fact, um, British warships entered the Caribbean uh, to remove him from office during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. This is an event not remarked upon much um, in recent days. So in the Caribbean, it's not only the coup against Chedi Jagan, but simultaneously the attempt to overthrow the government of Fidel Castro, in which British intelligence has routinely played a role alongside the CIA. Um, you have so much, there's so many stories in the Caribbean Small countries, every time they try to lift their head up. Another example, of course, Grenada, former British colony, 1979, the new jewel movement comes in, Maurice Bishop at the head, United States intervenes. There's, in fact, a marine uh, invasion by the U.S. government. Again, backed fully by British intelligence, they overthrow the new jewel movement. So <laughs> look at that. I mean, during this entire period, um, there's lots of photographs of Queen Elizabeth II visiting various islands. But let me tell you, underneath everything, there's a deep resentment of colonialism, slavery, racism, and so on. And you're going to see now more and more of these island nations uh, exert themselves like Barbados under Prime Minister Mia Motley. Uh, like Barbados, they are going to exert themselves and become republics. 
You are listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. We're in conversation with Vijay Prashad, historian and author of The Darker Nations, a people's history of the third world, which was just re-released with a 15th anniversary edition last month. I want to move our conversation more in the present. Um, It's worth mentioning that the British kingdom still maintains over 15 Commonwealth realms where the head of the British monarchy, which was the queen until a few weeks ago and now is King Charles, is still considered the queen or king. That includes Antigua, Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, Canada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, and a bunch more. I'm wondering, Vijay, what does the transition in the monarchy from the Queen Elizabeth to King Charles mean in real terms for these countries? Is it really that Antigua and Jamaica, which you mentioned earlier as stating after the Queen died that they wanted to become independent, were were they just waiting for the Queen's death to demand independence from the Commonwealth? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, obviously, you'll have to ask them to, to know, and I, I haven't had the time to to make inquiries of that kind. Uh, so uh, you're asking me to, to in a sense, uh, think for them. Can't do that. But here's what I can say. Um, you know, Queen Elizabeth II would have been the last monarch uh, of the British imperial tradition who essentially was able to craft her image quite strategically. You know, uh, she didn't have to be the monarch on live television all day. You know, even though... During her entire reign, she was on television, but she was not on live television. So one never saw the actual personality of Queen Elizabeth II. She was crafted as this sort of benign figure who, you know, loved people and and so on and so forth. Well, (laughs) you know, poor old Charles III, he emerges in the age of live everything streaming. I mean, you've already seen him behave appallingly with his staff. On several occasions, you know, one, his, uh, well, he's in, in the north of Ireland making a signing declaration. His ink pen leaks and he gets up from the table exasperated and he says, they always do this to me. And I was interested in that little outburst of his because it could be read in two different ways. They always do this to me. Ink pens always do this to me. Or the Irish always do this to me. Not sure what he was referring <laughs> uh-huh. to. But at any rate, you know, I think that he's a less lovable person, if I'm just going to be quite blunt, uh, even though he has all these, uh, you know, opinions about environmentalism and, and so on. He's a less lovable person. And I think a lot of countries are now like, okay, um, you know, Auntie Queen is dead. Now let's just abandon ship because we really don't need some rude fellow who gets cross all the time uh, to look up to. We don't need his portrait uh, in our government offices. I think there's a little subjective element to this, you know, um, that we're going to see more and more of Charles's atrocious personality on full display. And I think people in places, you know, like Antigua are just going to say, good God, it's 2022. We have enough problems, rising sea waters and so on. Do we really need to put this guy's picture up in all our offices? Yeah, um, we are in conversation with Vijay Prashad discussing the impact and power of Queen Elizabeth's reign and the British monarchy's reign since her rule. One of the things that you wrote in your book, The Darker Nations, you wrote, the third world bled to make Europe grow. 
Um, the queen herself, when she died on September 8th, was worth around $500 million. But as queen, she controlled about $28 billion of wealth. On top of that, the royal family in all is said to hold at least $88 billion. In broad terms, Vijay, what does that wealth represent? And with all that accumulated wealth, do you foresee things being different in any way under King Charles? Well, not at all. I mean, look, I was in Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, when she died. And you should have seen the reaction in in the Republic of Ireland, just next door to to England, to the realm of of the British, uh, you know, a queen. And of course, part of the uh, island of Ireland is still under British colonialism. And that's the colonies in the north. So uh, there was a very different attitude, even in Ireland than in the United States. One would have thought, my friend, that the United States, which somehow jettisoned uh, the British monarchy in 1776, would have a more Republican attitude to all this. But good God, no. It's almost as if Queen Elizabeth II was the queen of the United States. I mean, a ridiculous Mm. display of of piety and fealty and so on 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 U.S. television and in the press. Ridiculous, you know, uh, embarrassing even. Uh, Ireland, much closer to to Britain geographically, uh, much more ruthless attitude, you know. She's just another person who died. I mean, many European countries have kings and queens. You know, Spain has king and queen. Um, You know, most of the Scandinavian countries, Netherlands and so on. So, you know, what makes her any difference? You know, she's just another antiquated, uh, you know, institution that is now fading away. That's the attitude in Ireland. Plus, there's a strong anti-colonial sentiment, Republican sentiment and so on. So that's the first thing I would say. Secondly... You know, in the northern counties of Ireland, the British monarchy owns most of the coastline on the Atlantic side. It's a ridiculous, vulgar amount of wealth stolen from ordinary people, held by a family that is completely dysfunctional. I mean, if you were a Martian and came to Earth and just studied the different families and you looked at this family, you know, uh, rapists, child molesters, Um, murderers of various kinds, you know, I mean, extraordinary, you know, uh, I can't believe that this family is able to, for instance, survive the scandal of Prince Andrew uh, and his relationship to, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and so on. Can't imagine uh, that this is the case. And not only are they still revered ridiculously, but also they hold wealth which they stole. I mean, there is a meme that traveled around social media, a picture of the queen in regalia, which had arrows pointing at different things, you know, different jewels and so on, on her clothes. And they said things like Fiji, Barbados, India, and so on. I mean, there is a popular sentiment in these countries that, you know, you stole our stuff. When are we going to get it back? And I I think that attitude, stunningly, is not shared in the United States. And one reason it's perhaps not shared in the United States is that perhaps after 1776, uh, much of the great theft by the British monarchy took place outside the United States. United States is not a place of immense thieving by that monarchy. And secondly, the quote-unquote special relationship developed by the United States and, um, and Britain after World War II 
was to some extent structured around these sorts of fantasies of royalty. On the one side, it was um, the house of Windsor. And then on the other side, it's, you know, different kinds of houses, the house of, of, of the Kennedys, perhaps, or the house of the Bushes or the house of the Clintons. You know, these are different dynasties uh, in the United States. And some of this romance developed um, between the United States and Britain. And the queen played a role in this, structuring this romance. You know, um, somehow there was a kind of nostalgia for something that I frankly don't understand. But that's what it is. It's certainly not a nostalgia shared by people in the Caribbean, um, in Africa, or in Asia. So we're in conversation with Vijay Prashad, who's the author of The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, which just came out with a 15th anniversary edition last month. I want to wrap up our conversation talking about what you referred to as this antiquated model. Um, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about the modern value or importance of the monarchy, not just in this accumulated wealth, but in what's left of the uh, British Empire and the colonies. Does the British state get something out of the monarchy now? Or is the royal family just, I guess, uh, symbolic and or grifting off the state? How do you see its relationship to global political theater or political action? (laughs) Well, look, it's up to the British people to decide whether they want a monarchy. I mean, that's really up to them. It's a choice they will have to make. Um, And apparently some people argue, although I haven't seen the economic evidence for this, that the monarchy is like a tourist institution. People go to England while they see a play in London They do this, that, and the other. They may go drift along and have a look at Buckingham Palace. I don't know why you need a queen in there to go and look at Buckingham Palace because it's not like tourists get to see the queen, you know, or now King Charles III. They just look at the buildings. So I'm not sure what that argument is based upon. But that, again, that, to be frank, is for the British people to decide. What I think is going to happen, rather than let's talk about Britain becoming a republic, After all, they don't even have a constitution in Britain, you know, because it's a monarchy. Um, They have basically common law. They don't have a constitution. The entire system is governed on the uh, whim of the the monarch. Now, the monarch's whim is now structured into some traditions and so on. But that's a separate issue. What we will see is many of the countries, formerly colonized countries, uh, many of them uh, are going to definitely move away from having the queen be or the king now be the head of their state. Uh, That is a trend that we are going to see more of. Uh, When Mia Motley's government took this move in Barbados, um, it set in motion conversations. As I said, two other uh, countries in the Caribbean are discussing this. I think many more will. End of the day, you're going to end up with the old White settler colonial states like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they will remain um, nominally under um, the sway of the British monarchy. But I I think those in the Caribbean and so on are going to really walk away from this. This is not the future for them. And what of the relationship between the monarchy and political decision making in England and Britain? I ask this both in the context of perhaps speculating in the future but also thinking about more modern imperial actions. You just wrote this book alongside Noam Chomsky about the invasion and eventual withdrawal of Afghanistan, which, of course, Britain 
supported wholeheartedly. What are we to say? I mean, you know, uh, Britain, like the United States, has had a real decline in the caliber of its uh, elected leadership. You know, uh, the very fact that somebody like Liz Truss emerges as the leader after Boris Johnson, I mean, it, it should be an embarrassment for the British people. It says something about um, the kind of people that join right-wing parties. You know, um, the people of some talent of the right generally go into business and they sort of leave um, the party structure in the hands of people who are pretty mediocre. And that's what Britain is going to have to live with. You know, uh, look at the train, David Cameron, um, Boris Johnson. I mean, it's embarrassing. Liz Truss is an embarrassment. There was a meme online which suggested Liz Truss went to meet the Queen and the Queen says, that's it, I'm done. Can't, the, the decline is cannot be further than this. I mean, I don't want to sit around and have to meet her once a week and talk about affairs of state. I'm finished. Thanks a lot, Charles. It's your turn. Um, you know, I mean, uh, what does it mean? Well, it's got nothing to do with the king or the monarchy in general. It has to do with the deterioration of the caliber of people in politics. I mean, I, I sent a tweet out right after, um, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth's death. I said that it might actually end up being a fact that Charles III is to the left of Labour Party leader Keir Starmer. That's how bad British politics is. You know, um, the Labour Party under Keir Starmer has drifted into a kind of soft conservatism. And at least dear old boy Charles III, you know, is, is worried about the environment and he's worried about um, the price of housing and so on. Grumpy old fox that he is. At least he seems to hold one or two decent opinions. Can't say the same for the mediocre elected leadership in Britain. Well, we are going to have to end on that note. We are out of time. We've been in conversation with Vijay Prashad, historian and author of many books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, which was just re-released last month on its 15th anniversary with a new introduction. Vijay Prashad is also the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and has an encyclopedic knowledge of imperialism and decolonization movements. Vijay, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, family.